This is Coming Into Focus, the podcast about all things mental health, and I'm your host, Jay Wick, licensed marriage and family therapist. On this episode, I sit down with Michael Cook. Mike is currently a drug and alcohol counselor working at West Coast Recovery Centers in Carlsbad, California, and he hosts a podcast titled Positive Connections Radio, a show intended to help break the stigma of seeking help related to mental health issues among first responders. However, prior to all of this, Mike had worked in law enforcement for 19 years, spending the last 10 years as an undercover narcotics agent. After being prescribed Vicodin for an injury, Mike slowly found himself addicted to opioids and eventually doing the unthinkable. I don't want to give away too many spoilers for this one, but I do have to say, more than a story about addiction or recovery, this episode is about resiliency and never giving up. Mike is truly an inspirational guy, and I hope his story illustrates that no obstacle is too big to overcome. I think the what intrigues me a lot about mm-hmm. your story and about all of that is you were uh, you were a police officer for a while. I was uh, for a lengthy period of time, right? And then eventually became an undercover narcotics officer. Exactly. So, you know, on a on a maybe that's something we can get into, and maybe we can circle back to stuff prior to that or all of that. But that's kind of a big part of where a lot of your story starts, right? And where things started to kind of change for you and you had to make some big changes in your life. But well, the one thing I'm really curious about is, you know, on a scale of uh, Johnny Depp, 21 Jump Street to Johnny Depp, Donnie Brasco, what are the realities of being an undercover narcotics agent? What's the reality, you know, of what you're actually doing on the day to day? Of working undercover narcotics? Yeah. Well, the department I worked with is very small and uh, we did a lot of activity. But to compare it to something that's sensational, like a movie and Johnny Depp, it's it's really not like that. There are cases and a lot of true stories out there uh, that um, you know people that went undercover um, they had some experiences. Uh, in my experience, it was a lot of uh, we did a lot of vice narcotics, so we did a lot of prostitution. We did a lot of those kind of details and. We also did narcotic buys, but as going undercover, I never went deep undercover, although my mind might have thought I was going to do that, Yeah, and it led me down a rabbit hole I, I couldn't get out of, but uh, for the most part, uh, we just did, we tried to blend in, and we tried to um, basically get as much information to get the bad guy and to solve the case. So you're going out there just kind of in plain clothes, trying to make buys or different things like that, and then trying to gather more information as opposed to this idea that it's like this deep cover thing where you're creating an alter ego and all this other stuff. Yeah. For me personally, no, it wasn't like that. Yeah. Uh, I might not have used my real name, of course. I didn't look like I look like now. So I did blend in. Even as, when I wore a uniform as a cop, I don't, I don't think I really looked like a cop sometimes when I was out there. People see me now and they can't picture me of being a clean cut cop out there in a uniform and a badge. And uh, working undercover, uh, especially working undercover narcotics, it, it's, it's the dirt of the dirt sometimes. You're out there and you're dealing with people that are strung out on drugs. Yeah. And you're dealing with a lot of um, 
nefarious people where they're doing some really bad things. There's like very unpredictable people that you're kind of rubbing shoulders with. It's always unpredictable. Yeah. It's always unpredictable. And uh, there's a lot of, you know, being a cop and being uh, undercover, even being a detective. I was a, um, you know, plainclothes detective uh, for three years and I worked property crimes. There's a lot of, um, it's not all exciting. There's, there's more, it's probably 90% uh, investigations and follow-ups and surveillances days on end. And then there might be that 10% of planning to take the, the person down or the organization down and uh, very few percentages of actually doing it. And that is a thrill and it's a very exciting. It's very dangerous, Yeah. but we're trained to um, handle a lot of situations. We're trained to hold ourselves to a higher standard and, and we take every precaution to make sure that we get home safe every night. Yeah, I would imagine like that has to be a huge part of the job because the unpredictability of all of it. What right. that, I've heard this saying before: the predictable unpredictability. You know, like you can predict every day that something is going to pop up that you weren't prepared for, but you do your best to sort of stay prepared through all the training and everything. Yeah, right. Sure, sure. So, kind of circling back, mm -hmm. you how long were you a, a police officer? So I was a police officer for nineteen years. Okay, and the last ten years of my police um, job, I was an undercover narcotics detective. Okay. And so did you, was this something that you did out of high school? You wanted to, did you always know that you wanted to be a police officer or was it something that something happened in your life and you were like, you know what? I want to serve and protect. I want to help people. Yeah. You know, the first imprint in my mind when I was a kid, I was about five years old and I was in the passenger seat of my dad's uh, VW Bug, I think it was. And we were in downtown Chicago. I was, I was born in Chicago, moved out of here when I was nine. And I remember there was a, uh, street cops that traffic cops that were directing traffic and we were front line waiting it was winter time uh, this cop was all bundled up in his uh his leather and his uh, hat and he's blowing his whistle and he comes over to the passenger side of the car and that's the first time i ever had an experience with a police officer i've seen him before uh, fire i you know watch tv and whatever and and i never really experienced it and i rolled down the window and he knew my dad they said hi and he looked at me and he said hi and I said hi back and he reached into his pocket and he pulled out this gumball it's one of those white gumballs with all the little specks on it yeah yeah and it was in um it was in um you know saran wrap paper and he went to hand it to me he goes would you like this and I was like so happy that he was going to give it to me and I looked at my dad because I was always taught don't take anything from strangers right I wanted to make 100% sure that it's cool if I goes grab this and my dad said, go ahead, Michael. And I, I grabbed it and I put it in my pocket and he left. He went back out there, did a couple of tricks with his hands and spun around. It was pretty unique. And anything that you look back at as a traffic cop directing traffic in downtown Chicago or maybe New York, especially back in maybe the 70s or 80s, uh, that's exactly what it was. And we drove off. And throughout my whole life, I always remembered that time. I always remembered, and that was my first time ever experiencing uh, contact with a police officer. And it was a non-enforcement contact, but also when I was when I first started my police work, when I first became a cop, that's what the, I was told is that the first contact that you have with someone, whether it's a ticket, whether it's um, you're arresting someone, the person's first contact with the officer is going to stay with them. Usually the rest of their life and usually the rest of the contacts they have with police officers. Like how they shape their view of police exactly. officers. Yeah. A good way to put it. So if it was a bad first experience, 
every experience is probably going to have that same kind of bite to it. Yeah. So early on, I, I always respected uh, law enforcement and first responders, of course, and and getting older after high school and, go, and going into college, I did not know really what I wanted to do. And I remember looking through a uh, community college um, pamphlet and I was looking through all the majors and nothing interested in me. And it went, went to criminal justice administration. I'm like, that's it. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get my lower division in, transfer over to a state college, uh, get my degree and become a police officer. That's where it started. Right. Okay. I remember actually, I was listening to your podcast the other day, the introduction. Yeah. And I remember hearing that you got the, that you went through the criminal uh, justice program or that you, that's what you went to school for. Yeah. 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 So then, so you enter into the, the police force, you do the, you know, uh, police academy, I'm assuming, and all of that other stuff. And I, I remember hearing on your podcast too, uh -huh. that this, this was a really proud time for you going in this, this was a direction you chose. And then you go into the police force and you, you felt, you said on yours, you felt really proud. This was a proud moment. You're going to protect and serve. And exactly. And, and it was very proud for me. The, when I, when I started going to school, I was researching and becoming a reserve. I'm like, maybe I can do this a little bit so I can get my foot in the door and then become a full-time cop. And that was my, and I remember going to Escondido PD and, and sitting through one of their reserve. And I found out that they don't get paid. The reserve. Yes. They don't get yeah. paid. I'm, I'm like, I'm going to do this for free. Plus I'm going to school. How am I going to do this? And I thought about it for a couple of minutes and I ended up putting myself through the reserve Academy. And once I graduated from college a year later with a degree in criminal justice administration, the city that I was a reserve at, they picked me up full time. So I went to a full-time reserve, uh, a full-time Academy for uh, the police. And that's where it started. And then you start getting paid at that point. And then I started that. getting paid. Yeah. yeah, it was nice. So you're in the beginning for several years, just, um, uh, uniform officer doing everyday cop work. Yep. Right. And then at some point, I mean, I'm assuming it's a promotion, right? So moving to detective and narcotics and all of that is, it's not, it would it be a lateral kind of move or was it a step up? Well, monetarily it was laterally, uh -huh. uh, a step up in my own personal view and my goals as becoming a police officer. Yes. I wanted to become an undercover detective. Yeah. I wanted to go into narcotics. I wasn't getting paid anymore. So, but it was, it was, it, it comes with different benefits where I don't have to go put the uniform on and go out in the street every day. I wanted to, because I got within about six or seven years, I knew how to become a, a cop. I knew what I was doing. I was a training officer. I was doing a lot of things. I wanted to step up a little bit and expand what I was doing as a police officer. Just kind of trying to grow personally in your career, everything, just not sort of staying stagnant and being in the same spot. Yeah. And, and going undercover and doing these things and it's fun. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. You know, we get to kick a lot of doors in, we get to chase a lot of people. We do surveillances. We get to, uh, you know, pee in a cup after, you know, five or six hours in the same car. Cause you can't get out of it in the oh, middle wow. of summer, you know, 102 degrees and your windows have to be rolled up because you know, you don't want anybody to know that you're actually in the car watching them. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of, uh, a lot of fun involved. Like you want to consider that fun. Yeah, like the adrenaline and the excitement of just the whole thing. A yeah. little bit more exciting than, you know, I have no basis for understanding what real police work is and all of that, right? But patrolling or just giving tickets. I know you said to me before, you know, you kind of didn't really like the aspect of just going out and giving tickets and all of that. But this seems to me, I mean, it almost sounds like the games you play as kids, like where you're staking out, you're in the car, but there's like real stakes now. I mean, there's, a, there's real stuff to lose in this. 
True. And there's a lot of uh, guessing. There's a lot of dead ends. Yeah. There's a lot of time put into cases sometimes that you think that you have a great case. You're doing good. You're protecting the public and it turns into nothing or you hit a brick wall and you can't go any further. Yeah. A lot of the cases that I worked, I would work them from the ground up, meaning that I would start with a report of uh, some kind of crime and follow up on it, investigate, and maybe find a couple people that were doing some uh, bad things and illegal things. And I'd work it up to, I got a big case and I had a lot more people, I would pass it off to a bigger agency, usually a government federal agency. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you said part of this is the excitement and kicking in doors and all of these things, right? And and I'm assuming, because I know where some of your story goes and all of this too, but the work that you do with first responders and the nature of trauma and PTSD and these people that are on the scene first and are seeing, they're, they are either in the mix with some really dangerous things or they're seeing some really horrific things. Is that, um, I mean, was this part of your story too, that you you were starting to have trouble maybe handling some of the intensity of some of these things? Because I know you had said in your story that a lot of it's intense, right? And then, but you're sort of supposed to put this face on that everything's all right and that you're doing your job. Right, right. Well, you got to understand, Jay, also that when you get hired in law enforcement, you uh, are picked and you're screened. So you're at a little bit higher level and you're able to take a little bit more um, traumatic incidents, let's say, if you go to a scene and um, you might be able to handle things a little bit differently. Some people just would never want to do that. They don't, they never want to see a dead body. They don't want to deal with blood. They don't want to deal with arresting people. They don't want to deal with uh, mothers and fathers crying their eyes out over their child who just died in front of them. They just ran them over. So seeing those kind of things, we're trained to take care of the scene and we're, we're trained to make sure it's safe. And then we have to deal with what happened. What happened with, we got to make sure that our partners are safe, that the scene is secure and we're not going to be ambushed anywhere. Right. We become very hypervigilant. We're always watching our back. We're always holding our gun. We're always making sure that the scene is safe. Uh, the person that is maybe, um, doing something bad that needs to be taken under control and then once that's done, we can actually clean up the pieces. And right. Like, I mean, all of that, it sounds like you, you like you have to compartmentalize and just do the duty at hand, yes. all of this other stuff. And then when all is said and done and you know that there's some semblance of safety restored, yeah. then maybe you can have a, ch- a chance to have some reflection and go, holy shit, what did we just see or do here? Sure. And it's resilience. We learn resilience. We yeah. learn to... Uh, our command presence for police officers, fire department, any first responder, military, it's how someone perceives you, what you look like. If you have your shirt all untucked and your badges sideways or you don't have a badge and you know you haven't brushed your hair for, for all, that, all day long, that's your first level of defense. Um, if you have the command presence that's to be there, but you have to take care of whatever is at hand. So all those emotions that we have get from let's say a death uh, a suicide or an overdose some kind of incident a traffic incident anything to deal with children uh, it, it gets to you and yeah. we have to hold it in because if we break down right there we lose control of the scene right so it's our protection so we get home safe and other people get home safe too is to take care of the scene now once everything's secure 
and we're able to take, take a step back, maybe take a breath, that is when we get the adrenaline dump and we start um, noticing that our heart is beating very, very fastly and that we're sweating and our, our vests are wet and maybe we have a rip or maybe we have blood. Maybe we're bleeding somewhere. We don't, all that adrenaline like is all pumping. of that stuff's going and you're not, we even don't know until out, you're we like stop. out of your body almost kind of through all of it. Exactly. Yeah. However, a lot of times we'll go and we won't actually come to our partner and say, hey, that really bothered me. Or this is how I'm feeling. I, I'm a, you and me, my friend, this is how I'm feeling right now. Instead, of, instead, a lot of us will like hold that in because it's a sign of weakness. At least that's what we think. And we don't want to tell our partners, oh, yeah, um, I need to go over here and freaking ball my eyes out because right. I'm going to cry in front of everybody right now. And that happens sometimes. It happens where we have to swallow those tears back. Yeah, you've just seen something happen involving a kid or something, I can imagine. For and sure. It's just horrible. And then it's like, you want to get in the car and cry to your partner or something. But every, I would imagine just sitting there in silence, like, yeah, trying to not even, you, you can't even talk necessarily about what you just saw. You know, when you considered a wimp or a baby or, you know, it's like, right. you, know, you just suck it up. And, and that mentality and, and that philosophy has been going on for a long time. I noticed there's been a switch over the last several years. And uh, more so right now, as I'm talking to you, I know I've talked to people in the field and it's starting to change a little bit, but you know, the door is just a little bit cracked. It's just like the door is shut before with the stigma where it's like, Hey, you don't talk about your feelings. We drink about our feelings. And then, then we'll be, we'll be able to actually express our feelings. If we drink, got a little because, liquor in you, yeah, you can just talk. Cause about... I have an excuse now. Right. I have an excuse. I, I was drinking too much. That's why I was like, getting all emotional, man. Hey, Hey, I'm good. Right. right? Not being vulnerable just for the sake of being vulnerable yeah. or expressing your emotions. Yeah, but yeah. then it could become a problem. So I think the door was shut for so long, and now it's starting to get cracked. A little bit of wind's coming in. And once in a while, we open up the door, and a little bit more information comes in or people start changing. Yeah. So as long as it's starting to open a little bit, pretty soon it'll be a society more um, understanding, and, and, and it's okay to be vulnerable. You have to be tough. You have to go out there and kick butt, but... You know, you, you have to actually take care of yourself. Right. Because it doesn't, it doesn't, your body grows older. And as time goes on and years goes on, it starts breaking down. Whether you like it or not, if you hold that shit in, it is going to start breaking down. It is definitely going to affect you in one way or another. And a lot of cops are putting guns in their mouths, man. And, yeah. and that sucks. Yeah. That, you just reminded me of an analogy that I've heard before about stress where they're talking about holding a full glass of water out in front of you. Mm -hmm. They say, you know, hold the hold the glass of water out in front of you for 30 seconds. Right. Does it hurt your arm? Does it cause you any pain? No. Hold the glass of water out in front of you for five minutes. How's your arm feel? Hold the glass of water out in front of you all day. Right. 30 days, a lifetime. You know, your arm's going to be killing you. Yeah. And it, the analogy is kind of like that holding all of that stress in and holding everything in. You can only do it for so long before it's starting to cause some serious damage. Exactly. You know? Exactly. And, and, and with that analogy too, I, I heard that before I, I took it away where, you know, when it gets too heavy, you know, you can ask for help. Help me hold my freaking hand up, man. I need some help. Yeah. And it's not, it's okay. I, I work on personally and I've been doing it the last uh, several years is I always have been the helper. If you need your garage moved, if you need um, groceries taken out of the car, I'm right there. I'll push you out of the way, get your groceries. Right. But if I'm, taking five bags of groceries in each hand. I'm walking to the door and I'm going to kick open the screen and somehow push the door open with my knee. I'm doing it. No, no, no. I got it. I'll say I got right. it. So I've been working on uh, when someone asked me, hey, Mike, you need any help? I pause. 
And I attempt to say something in the affirmative like, yes, I do. However, can I get back to you? And that is even hard for me to say right now. I had to like think yeah. about exactly how I want to phrase it. But the biggest thing I've learned is to pause. My first reaction is say, no, I got it. Oh, no, I got it. Yeah. Oh, I got this. Yeah. And in my head, I got it. I know exactly what I'm going to do. But if I just pause, is there something? Because it's sort of selfish for me to not let someone help me because I truly believe they want to help me or they wouldn't ask. Right. And so I might say, you know what? You can do something. You can do something for me. And, uh, and you know, it works out better that way. So right. it's a practice. So, I mean, even in that, right, you're just to kind of backtrack just a little bit when you're saying the door is sort of starting to crack open to an acceptance of maybe asking for help around some of these things these officers have seen or these first responders, and it's sort of just cracked. But do you think that the door is cracked and maybe the, um, the powers that be or, you know, the higher ups are saying, hey, this is, they're sort of promoting this, right? Mm -hmm. Speak your feelings, ask for help, talk to a therapist or whatever. But then do you think within the general consensus of the officers or the people, it's still sort of felt like, nah, like if I do that, I know you're saying I should ask for help or I should talk about it. But if I do that, I'm still going to be perceived as a wimp or a wuss or whatever. So people aren't necessarily taking advantage of it like they could be. Yes, there are people out there that are suffering in silence and uh, law enforcement specifically. There's a lot of guys and girls out there that are dealing with a lot of uh, things. And however, they have their house still. They have their job. They're well-respected. They have their boats and their cars and their families and their kids. They are struggling with things. However, what I found in the last eight years and specifically the last four years is that a lot of people that end up calling me, they're out of sick time. They're out on an IOD, injuries on duty. They might be sort of on some kind of, um, they're in trouble with their department. Somehow they might've just got a DUI. Their wife left them, husband left them. They're actually struggling where they're losing everything. And now they're forced to get help because they're finally saying like, okay, you know, the snowball fell down the mountain. I'm hitting the bottom. Instead of like fixing it or helping yourself when you're halfway down, when you're rolling, right. They've already stopped rolling, and if they don't get sober, if they don't get help, if they don't deal with their you know, PTSD or PTSI or whatever situation they're with, then um, they probably will lose a lot more, maybe their career. So it's like the culmination of the, trying to handle it on your own for so long and thinking like, okay, I can just tough it up, stuff it down, power through, but then all of these sort of consequences and things keep spilling over. And m you and I were talking right before this with in the sense of, working with a lot of people in recovery and all of that, that it's such a hard thing and unfortunate to see a lot of people have to hit that bottom place before they just go, you know what? I need to ask for help or I need to make some changes or something. And it's kind of, I mean, you're not speaking specifically to recovery in this, but you're still speaking to a mental health issue or something that's happening where incrementally along the way, you could get some support, ask for some help and things wouldn't snowball into that place. But unfortunately, it seems to be a lot of the people try to handle it on their own or whatever. And then it, it comes to this place where there's some real consequences. Yeah. And it comes down to trust also. Yeah. Am I going to trust someone that comes to me and says, Hey, I think you need help, a therapist or, or EAP. If there's uh, available options out there, am I really going to call that number for me personally? 
I was always worried it's going to get back to uh, my command staff. It's going to get back to my partners. They're going to know that I'm seeing this counselor, even though no one knows about it. Somehow it's going to you know get back to everybody, yeah. and I'm going to be considered unfit for duty. Sort of like a liability, maybe. A liability they now. they hear that you're struggling with something, then sure. they sort of perceive you in a different light, maybe. Sure. And what if I what if I came to someone, I, I was had suicidal ideation? I've got no plans. I could, wouldn't be able to 5150 myself, but I'm afraid to tell my partner, hey, I'm stressed out. I'm not getting enough sleep. I'm eating like crap. My wife is always yelling at me. I come home and after shift, I pass out and I'm done. Or I, I go home and I drink a couple shots and a six pack of beer and then I pass out and I'm done and I shut everybody else out. Yeah. And a lot of us uh, love the job so much that overtime for me was just great. Getting overtime? Getting overtime and working. Not, yeah. not alone do you get more money for doing that, but you get to be around your partners. You get to do these cases. You're actually making a difference. There's like a camaraderie in it and you, you feel good about what you're doing. Of course. Of and course. Sort of to the, the downside of maybe not tuning into the, taking some self-care or some time for yourself. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. So this sort of transitions into the, the next part of your story. And, and I mean, obviously there's a lot of other pieces in the puzzle and all of that, but right. what you're describing and kind of what you were just describing, go home, take some shots. I got, I got it coming at me from all different directions. My wife's yelling at me, this is happening, all of that. It's, it started to happen with you, right? And slowly started to build up and you found yourself kind of getting into some dicey areas. Well, over time, a lot of first responders, and to tell you the truth, a lot of people in general, um, it's socially acceptable, right? Growing up hearing, oh, I had a hard day. I deserve a drink. I deserve a wreck. You deserve a break today. Whatever the, the motto is, you know, drink responsibly. You know, drinking responsibly, that is the best motto ever because, yeah, I'm a responsible person. Yeah. I'm going to drink responsibly. It, it, it is a genius because in my mind, I'm thinking, well, yeah, what is responsible to me, right? It's very subjective to me. Responsible might be, oh, well, only after I get off work and I only drink, uh, you know, up until dinner time and I won't drink afterwards. Right. Uh, or to me, it's like, well, I can have a drink after dinner or maybe I'm just going to skip dinner or maybe my responsible is, well, I wake up on a Saturday morning. Um, nothing's going on. The kids are gone. Um, everybody's fine. I have a whole day to myself. It's responsible for me for drink inside my house from 10 till two. And then I could sleep it off until six. And then the, the, the family will be home. I'll make dinner. Right. So it's in your mind. And I know we got off track a little bit. Yeah. Here, but I just thinking even like responsible to me is like, eh, I can go out and get blacked out. Yeah. As long as I took a cab home. Yeah. I was being responsible. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That space though with you, you know, most people that I know who have gone down a road of substance use disorders and all of that other stuff, right? Like it didn't just, it doesn't always just start out in this full blown thing. No. It's an incremental thing that builds up and it's a coping mechanism. I imagine it started with you sort of just trying to de-stress from the things you're witnessing on the day to day or trying to just put work, trying to shut work out for a minute when you get home. And then that was, that initially started with just alcohol, right? Yeah. I think in the beginning it started for me as a fun activity. Hey, I'm out of self. I'm have no cares, yeah. no children, nothing going on. You know, I'm going to go out and have some fun. And then it led to more of like a coping mechanism, <clears throat> a negative coping mechanism for me, because uh, once I started stuffing more and more 
uh, things down, uh, emotional things and uh, events that I experienced in my head that might come up in dreams or I might get triggered by other events happening in my life, uh, I, I would drink and yeah. that would stop it. And and after time, it one drink wouldn't be enough, of course. Two drinks would get the job done for the most part. However, I'd clicked over and you know it would be six drinks or maybe seven drinks at a time where I was a, abusing alcohol. And for the most part, an escape. Yeah. Because if I'm not at work talking to my partners or talking to them on the phone, the people around in my life, I've already got rid of the people I knew from high school. It's sort of after time, I took one path as law enforcement. They took their path and continued on with their lives. And so pretty much the only people in my life were my my immediate family and, and law enforcement or first responders. So, and you're finding yourself just kind of with not as many people to like, you're not going to come home and dump some crazy traumatic thing that you've seen on your wife or your kids or something. Right. You're right. Just, yeah. 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 And they they might, they might like that in the beginning, even friends, close friends, they might like to hear it for the first couple of years, but it's day in, day out. They don't want to keep hearing about suicides and car crashes and other cops do though. Other cops are very curious because yeah. we get to talk about, and that's how we process it. And, and so, yeah, so my coping me- mechanism started out with alcohol and it, it, it worked. It really did work. It got me through. I was able to maintain my job. I didn't have to come to work um, drunk or buzz. I might have been drinking late night, but I had enough sleep. It, it got to a point that it was uh, unmanageable for me where uh, I couldn't stop drinking once I started. I'd always drink too much, but uh, I was a very active officer, and I did a lot of work. I did a lot of good work. I was well-respected, and I was very active, and, and I got injured a lot also. So when I would go to the doctor, let's say for a sprain or a bro- broken bone or some kind of tear or back injury, they'd always try to push on me some kind of pain pill, narcotic. Right. I knew all about it. I was a drug recognition expert. It. I was, you know, I ended up going into narcotics. So I know all about that. I did not want to get addicted to painkillers. I knew about all that stuff. And so I would politely say, no, I'm good. Right. Cause I can, t- I can handle this. I'm tough. It's a right. bruise. Suck a, it up. A, take a, some Advil. Yeah. A broken toe. Exactly. I'll go home. And I knew that I had beer in the fridge, maybe a bottle of vodka hidden somewhere around the house. And that was my go-to. So that, that would, that's a pain reliever, of course. Right. And, and that's what I would do. And until I got injured badly and I went into the doc again and he prescribed me Vicodin and that was, um, it was hard for me to accept it, but I needed it because I was in some severe in pain. Serious pain. Yeah. And got me a big old prescription of it and I took it home and I took a pill and I remember the pain was gone within about 10, 15 minutes. And, and, and I, I was like, that, this is great. I feel great. I'm in a brace. And then the euphoric feeling that I got from that drug, that narcotic, that opioid, it was so amazing. I thought it was the best feeling I've ever felt in my life. I could not describe it, but it was a feeling of just being happy and serene and peaceful. And this I, is the first time that the you, first time you I recall had this, the first time you uh, took first the, time I took the Vicodin, you felt all this euphoria and everything just kind of like, I felt like not a care in the world. I was, I was. I was at peace. I felt good. I didn't feel um, dizzy. I didn't feel out of sorts. I felt like my brain was working very well. In fact, I was uh, in a really good mood. 
So I remember that imprinting on me really yeah. early on when I first started, and I got through that injury okay. And I also noticed that I didn't really, I wasn't interested in alcohol as much anymore because alcohol got me to a certain point, but I remember that euphoric feeling that I got from Vicodin. And so it didn't become a problem, me taking more of the pills until later on, but it always remembered it. So injury after injury, years later, I would get prescribed that drug and I would actually ask for it and, and taking it. And pretty soon, instead of taking two pills, one to two pills every four to six hours, I was taking like four to six pills every one to two hours. Right. right? And, and I remember starting it off like, I'm taking one pill. This gets me four, four or six hours. It does work if you take it as prescribed. Yeah. Pain you was just gone. might not feel that euphoria that yeah. you're seeking, you know. But I started chasing that feeling because yeah. that was my escape. And I was holding these emotions in and these things in because I didn't want to talk about it. I just wanted to be, I wanted to be done. I wanted to escape for a little while. I wanted to go back and do my work. I wanted to get healed. And the I, quick, easy kind of fix to the problem, right? right? Because yeah. I looked at counseling. I looked at therapists like you are. We, it's a common in law enforcement to call them shrinks. I'm not going to go see that shrink. A shrink was a negative word. Right. For me, it was like, ah, he's seen a shrink. Oh, that's a shrink. I mean, that word was just like, oh, that's not a, he's not an LMFT. We didn't, we didn't say properly. Yeah, yeah. We, we looked at it as like hocus pocus type of 60 stuff. Yeah, where, you gotta go talk about your feelings yeah, and touchy sit in a feeling. Room. It's yeah. touchy feeling. That word was thrown around so much, especially by the experienced vetted officers that were there that I looked up to. Oh, that's just touchy feely bullshit. You know, hey, we get to work. Yeah, you have to get to work. You have to take care of business. You got to kick some ass. But when the ass is kicked, you got to chill out and 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 check yourself. Right. I didn't. I, what I did was I go back to the, the, the office or go back to the station in the locker room and I changed my clothes if they were ripped. I would take my vest up, off, put a new undershirt on, put my wet vest back on from sweat. I'd brush myself all up and I'd get back out there. This is after like some big incident or something. It's just like, oh yeah, bottle it up, put it on, change clothes, get back out there. Yeah. It's, it sucks when you, when you end up arresting someone for, uh, for some crime where they try to get away or they try to fight you and you're fighting for your life. And after that, that adrenaline dump I talked about, uh, yeah. everything breaks down. I've had times where I couldn't even walk. I was shaking so much. I had to hide in my car, yeah. pretend like I was writing a report when someone was talking to me. I could not even hold a pen. Your knees are wobbling everything. and everything. Yeah, and you're I've sweating. felt those before, but I can imagine the intensity of that. Yeah. 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 But you don't want to see people, you don't want to see your partners that way. You don't want them to see you that way. And even though we all know what's really going on, we tend not to talk about it. And I think uh, with the chaplaincy programs coming into departments and more peer support, stronger peer support, and some departments that never had them before are starting to develop them, it's a safe avenue for someone to talk about what's going on. Yeah. And you're not considered a wimp. You're not considered uh, less than. You're actually considered a, a strength by asking for help. Right. Like that's the, um, I quote Brene Brown a lot, you know, yeah. she does all her research in vulnerability and shame and yeah, something that amazing. I always like the reframe that I always like is like being able to be vulnerable, vulnerable enough to ask for help or to step out and put yourself out there is actually ironically one of the most courageous things you can do, right? Cause sure. you're going and you're doing the hard route and somebody could chop you down because you're exposing yourself and saying what you can't, but the sort of, you know, I don't want to use the word weak, but I'm losing. It's not weak, but like the lesser of the two options is keeping it all to yourself and then letting it 
eat you up inside until you completely fall apart rather than putting it out there. It's interesting. I'm thinking of this as you're saying all of this is it feels like I've, I've heard this before with military and um, now you're sort of reiterating the story that the door is sort of open and within programs, they're saying, ask for help, talk about it, you know, seek a therapist or something. But then within sort of the the day-to-day, the guys, right? Like if you're sitting in a car with your partner, I would imagine you want your partner to be, have their shit together, to be a tough guy, to know that they got it, right? right? And so even if you are fully like in support of going and doing the touchy-feely therapy or whatever, but you find out your partner's doing it, there's probably subconsciously a little space where you're like, can I trust this guy with my life? Like, mm-hmm. is he going to be there? Is he going to fall apart? And I've heard military guys saying the same thing where they're like, yeah, they encourage us now to go talk. But if you do, you're sort of seen as a as weak and as a liability and all this other stuff. So it's this sort of double-edged sword where, yeah, do it. It'll be great for you. But also don't do it because you might get looked down upon. And it's a personal choice too. Right. And that's very possible that happens. And the person that's judging the other person that's getting help probably has to look at themselves a little bit right. deeper. Yeah. Now I want my partner. So let's say I'm a training officer and I get a new guy or girl comes out of the academy, maybe week two, brand new, everything. The gig line's all set. Their guns all polished. Their boots are great. Now if they go to a traffic stop with me and we get into a fight and they take them down to the ground and cuff them and they take it, they get skinned up or whatever. They do their job. I don't care what they do. They can see, you know, go to see Dr. Phil. That's totally fine. It's better if they do get some help, especially early on in their careers. If they're like, oh, this is this is hard. Man, I had to I broke that guy's arm. I didn't mean to, but it's it's traumatic, you know, breaking right. someone's arm. Yeah. It's good to talk about it and saying, Oh, I'm this tough guy. I, I'm fine. Yeah, of course I broke his arm. I'm ba- a badass. However, after it's all done, I know that she's going to back my ass up. She's going to protect me. She's going to be there when the chips fall down and she's got my back. Yeah, I'm not going to hold it against her right. because I might need some counseling too. The whole mentality and the whole shift of the stigma about mental health issues among first responders is changing slowly. Yeah. But it is. Every academy a class that I speak to, I see a little bit more bright lights coming on. I see a little bit more hands raising and more attentive uh, folk out there that are actually actually paying attention to what I'm saying. Yeah. And they have really good questions and their concerns and they know about recovery and they, they know about uh, getting help because they're getting taught in it. The wellness program in San Diego, they have a wellness um, section of the academy and then they do meditation. I mean, back when I first got it, meditation yeah, was right. for hippies. Yeah. And, and I like I liked meditation, but I would never tell anybody, oh yeah, I like to like have some mindful meditation and be present and you know, cross my legs and say ohm. That was looked down upon, <laughs> yeah, right? I because hippies are from the sixties, seventies, whatever. Mm-hmm. They smoke pot and flower child. Or you type picture of thing. this mellow, like Buddhist monk or something like that. That's not the energy you're trying to bring to the work you're doing. Yeah, but a lot of it was brought over from the older generation that were maybe cops in the sixties and seventies. It was a whole different time. Yeah, and there was a lot of biases and there was a lot of injustices, and things are changing. Some people can't forget about the past. Right. They're, they're, they're not willing to let it go because they think if they let it go, it wouldn't mean, mean anything. But this is the way we've always done it. This is the way we're going to keep doing it. Exactly. Yeah. Or if something's happened to them in the past with someone else, the most powerful thing that I ever did in my life was to look at my past and let it go. 
and make sure that I'm not looking too far ahead in the future. I'm staying right here in the present, looking at you, talking to me on this podcast. It's, it's to get focused and present is so important because that's all we have is this moment, man. Right. We don't have anything else. And, and it's that moment out in the field when the chips fall down, you've got to be at your best. You got to make sure that you're sleeping well. You got to make sure that you're not drinking too much alcohol. I'm not saying alcohol is a bad thing. Too much of it for me, it was very bad. Or how you're using it, right? How you're using it. Escape, coping mechanism. If you're escaping, if you're mowing the lawn and drinking, um, right, and then that night drinking again, and if you make it part of your daily routine, yeah, it could be an issue. It takes you out of that present moment too, like you're talking about. You know, so what you were saying too, and um. I wanted to just touch on this space of it seems like the the paradoxical thing is right. Like it's like, okay, be tough, suck it up, whatever. And then you can get out there and do your job. But if you're in your head falling apart or you're suffering from trauma or all these other things, you're not really going to be as available to be present to do your job. Right. 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 So like it, it makes more sense to go see someone weekly or by week or, you know, by monthly or whatever. Right. And have a space where you can unload some of this stuff, talk to somebody, get some coping skills or some various things that you bring on board so that you are doing the things like you're talking about. You can sleep well, you don't have to cope with unhealthy things. You, you have all this other stuff. And then it makes you that much stronger or better to be in the line of duty doing what you're supposed to be doing. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Self-care is number one. Right. And when we're young, you know, early 20s, starting this kind of career, we're, we're invincible, of course. And, and, and I knew eventually it would start breaking down, but I thought I was invincible where um, I could do it. I, I, my, my adrenaline was always there. I was always uh, on high alert. I got plenty of rest. Nothing really bothered me that much. I sort of detached myself from, from some critical incidents because I held myself to that higher standard. But yeah, you need to be alert, fully alert, but you have to take care of yourself. Yeah. Because how can you take care of someone else if you're not good? Right. If you're holding these secrets in, like I heard a lot, you're as sick as your secrets. Yep. If I'm holding all these secrets in, I'm shoving all these secrets down. I don't want to tell another soul. That's a lot of a lot of baggage to be carrying on your back. Just yeah. Letting, letting go a little bit and letting it loosen up, you know, telling someone what your issues are and trusting that they're not going to go on a loudspeaker or on a talk show and talk about you. And if they did, you know what? Who cares? It's your truth. Right. If I speak the truth and I know in my heart what I'm saying to you right now, Jay, it's truthful. I don't care what you think about me. Not that I don't love you. Not that I don't like respect you and trust you. But I know in my heart what I'm doing is right for the best of my ability. I'm not always right. Right. <laughs> That's what Google's for, right? <laughs> yep. So, I mean, speaking of secrets and all of this, right, eventually, and I don't want to glorify and get too much into the nitty gritty detail right. of all of it, right? But eventually where it went for you is it went to a pretty bad place and mm-hmm. it ended up costing you, am I correct? Did it cost you your job? Like, So yes, yeah. it did. It cost me everything and I started a new life. So the pills, uh, opiate pain medication, uh, brought me to a doctor shopping, basically getting found out by my doctor, uh, getting strung out, uh, detoxing myself several times, stopping, and then going back to the doctor and getting more prescription. In my head, I'm thinking, well, it's legit because it's from a doctor and it's a prescription. It's prescribed. I heard, yeah. I heard that bullshit before I even had a pill before I knew, I knew that saying in my head, I knew I was full of shit, but that 1% said, you know what? That could be a little true, right? It is from a doctor. I'm like, yeah, you're right. Right. It's okay for me to take five pills at once. The brain's right? real good at coming up with those it, excuses, it is. huh? Yeah. Because 
it's the need for it. Yeah. If you've never taken opiates before or pain medication, it, it, it does something to you where you actually physically need it. And I have so much more understanding of the addicts, the junkies, the ones that are slamming heroin out there that haven't had it for a few days and they're out of their head and they're stealing from people and, and, you know, pawning their wife's, you know, wedding ring. Okay. I understand it because you physically need that drug. You feel like you're going to die. You feel like you're going to die. And your brain is like, what can I do to help? I know the answer, how I can stop myself from feeling like I'm going to die. I just need a little bit of money or whatever, right? And buy some dope and in it or buy some pills. You know, you feel like you're going to die, but you don't. Right. Right. So anyway, uh, move on with mine. It, it went to where I started taking pills from work, started taking pills from people's houses at, uh, in search warrants or whatever, or the evidence. And that's, you know, for me to say that, just like, like I just said it just now, yeah. it seems like it doesn't mean anything to me. That was horrible because as soon as I did something like that, as soon as I took the very first pill that was in our narcotics office, I crossed the line that I could never get back again. At that moment, I lost my badge. At that moment, I... Before you actually lost your... Like you're already... Oh, exactly. Oh, yeah. It was was a little bit before that. But I knew at that point, once I crossed that line, I was willing to cross that line for opiates. I was an undercover narcotics detective working... And you know what? I did that because I needed that drug so bad. Um, it's overwhelming. And that's why people do things. They give up their children. They give up their cars and their house and their wives and sometimes their lives for it. And it, it, is, it is bad. So yeah. it got to a point where there was no more pills and heroin was there. And I ended up taking a piece of heroin on one of our bus that we have. And I tried that. And I never got to a point of slamming it or injecting it, but it got so bad that um, I was taking it from evidence. And I ended up uh, trying to get help. I ended up going to a detox on my own before anybody found out what I was doing. And my plan was to go get detoxed, go to a rehab, come back to work, all shiny, bright, and new mic, and not ever do that again. Right. Nobody's <clears> going to know. You're, it, if nobody finds out about this, I'll change my life. I promise. Yeah. And that happened probably three times in 2011 where I said, never again. I stopped it. I didn't tell anybody. I basically got sober, right? I wasn't drinking. I wasn't using pills or smoking heroin. And um, and then I felt so good. I'm like, oh, well, here happens to be another opportunity for me. No one's going to notice a tiny little pin. I'm going to try it again because I, I want to escape. I want to get high, right? Right. And it, it and it's gonna make me a better undercover detective, right? I'm gonna be freaking Johnny Depp, man. I'm, You're gonna I'm 21 know. Jump Street, yeah. just like going into high schools and shit. No, right. I. But I. But in my head, I was thinking, and I. And once again, I knew I was. I was all bullshit. I know it was bullshit, but that one percent of me thought. Well, technically, yeah, I guess you will know because you're smoking heroin. Yeah, that's what they do. When you're buying dope on the streets, when you're driving them and picking them up from their dealer, they're giving you a couple bindles and they're smoking dope right next to you in the car. You sort of know what they're doing now, right? Right. So that led to eventually uh, me getting found out by evidence and uh, losing my career. Uh, I I got arrested and uh, they wound up my house one night that last night and answered the door and there was two detectives there that I worked with for 19 years. Like guys that you knew. Guys that I knew. I was in the field with them and uh, one was lieutenant and one was a sergeant and they came in and and they, I invited them in. 
and said, Mike, I think we need to talk to you at the station. And I knew right then. Yeah. Yeah, you do. And I said, yes, you do. Yes, you do. And, and from there on, I went through the you know, interrogation process, which was not too bad for, for them because I pretty much told them exactly what was going on. And that was the very first time where I'm sitting in the, the IA room where all my friends were and my best partners and the chief of police walking by, everybody getting called out at 10 o'clock at night on a Thursday, and that Mike's sitting in this chair and he's uh, strung out on drugs and a phlebotomist there has taken my blood and I'm weeping and crying. And finally, the, the very first time in my life in front of people, I said, I'm a drug addict. I need help. Wow. And I knew that it was, chills. Too, I knew it was too late to save my job. Right. I knew at that point, but that freedom that I had when I said I need help. There, I was I'm going to ask, like, was there just a relief or just a like a, a you're describing as a freedom when you're just finally no more secrets. It's all found out, whatever. And you can just basically be like, I have a problem and I need help. Yes. Yes. It was all built up inside me. And I just, you know, I don't know how it sounded, but it was louder than normally. And it was when I was weeping and crying and snot running down my nose and, um, you know, and them taking my blood. And I said, I need help. And, and that feeling of, of relief and release, it was, it was good, but it was devastating because I would imagine I knew at that moment when I said those words, I thought really quickly this whole time. I could have said this a long time ago. And, and it wasn't just the addiction part of it. It was everything else that I've kept bottled up. All my secrets came out in that one sentence. And I was giving up. I gave up at that moment. I surrendered to the fact that, hey, yeah, I'm going to lose my job. Yeah. yeah. When they said that, well, we're not going to book you in a jail tonight. I looked, I said, I looked at them and say, are you serious? I'd book me. And they right. did book, book me that night. Yeah. I didn't have any resentments. I expected to. Right. If they didn't, I thought something was wrong. They're not going to let me go home. So that, that was the beginning of, of, um, of my new life right there. I had to figure out what was going on. It was really tough the very first year, especially the very six, first six months. I had to get a, a divorce lawyer, and I had to get a criminal a defense lawyer who was excellent. And, and I basically fell on the sword. And I had 47 felony counts against me. I left a big paper trail. It was very sloppy at the end. I was out of control. Yeah. And I was going down that, uh, that, uh, that rabbit hole that I couldn't get out of anymore. And I finally hit the bottom. I, was just, I just knew that I'd have to crawl up sometime. And I didn't know where. Because there was no light at the top of that hill. That, that when tunnel. you're just finally down at the bottom. When I was at the bottom, I everything. looked up in my mind. And I, I have a podcast about this too. It's about being in a hole. And I remember thinking in my mind, like I'm in the bottom of a hole and there's an opening somewhere. I don't, I can't see it. It's dark. Yeah. I'm going to find that opening. Eventually I'm going to climb out. And so I had that sense to, to fight and the will to survive. And a saying that they say very early on to all recruits is you never give up no matter what. And you got a picture of a pelican with a frog in its mouth. Oh, and the yeah. legs are hanging out and the frog has the neck of the pelican trying to <laughs> strangle it. Right? Yep. You never give up no matter what. Once you give up, it's all over with. Right. There's no opportunity to see where that, like that next climb up the rung of that dark hole that you're in or whatever could have you could have seen a little peak of light, but as soon as you give up, there's no chance to ever see that. Right. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, this is crazy not to um, interrupt on this, but it's something I really want to hone in on because uh -huh. this is something I see a lot, right? Is you've lost everything. 
the shame and all this and you're in front of your partners and everything you're losing your wife it's just devastating and you have a little glimmer of faith or something that i got to figure out a way to keep going forward right but here you are now mm-hmm. you do all this work with all these people and all of that it, you just passed uh 222 February 22nd was eight year mark, right? That's right. Of consecutive clean, sober recovery, yep. right? Rewind all the way back to that day one. Like, how did you find the the resiliency? I mean, did it? Do you think it came from some of this training? Is it part of the nature of who you are? You're faced with 47 felony counts, right? Right. right. Like, I would imagine part of that worrisome place in your head is just like, I'll never be able to do anything again. How? Who's gonna hire me? How am I ever gonna transition onto a different life? Well, what was the the thought process or how was your mindset in that space? My mindset at that time, looking forward when I was in a rehab, thinking about that. Okay. I'm in a rehab with you know, 25 other people that are not cops and I'm the only one on criminal charges and I'm a, I'm a cop. I was a cop and I'm sitting there thinking, what's my life going to look like? So I was thinking the options. I go to prison. That was probably a 90% chance. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say I'm going to prison because how can't I not? Right. And they might make an example out of me. That's fine. Okay, I did this. What I started with was I accepted responsibility 100%. I didn't point blame. And I was able and the willingness to an open-mindedness to actually move forward and trust that recovery I can stay sober no matter what. And I was so thankful that I was able to be clear-headed at the time because it was about week two. I was sober. I had no drugs in my system and, 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 and rehab except for the medication they helped me detox with. And I was so thankful to be out of that hole, at least the hole that I was falling down. I was no longer falling down anymore. Right. You know, And there was a little bit of light at that point where I'm thinking, okay, it's going to be devastating. I'm going to be in prison. I have two young children. They're going to have to see me through the bars. But no matter what happens, I am going to survive and I'm going to be sober. I don't care what's going to happen in prison. I'm going to, I'm going to be sober through it. Uh, the first thing that I did was uh, start praying again. I don't know what I was praying to, but, but I knew that no matter what it would take, I would get through it and I would be able to stay sober and, and, and have some kind of faith in, in something there's a reason for me to be where I'm at right now. Right. I'm not dead, and uh, there's always an option for suicide, which of course I, I contemplated. You know, I didn't have an action or a plan, but I'm like, okay, how's that going to look? No, you know what? I'm not giving up. I'm never going to give up. I'm going to do this thing, and I'm going to accept responsibility. And if that means spending seven years in prison, I'll spend seven years in prison. I'll do what it takes, but I'm not going to do dope anymore. I'm yeah. so thankful that I don't have to anymore. You know, the obsession was starting to lift. I didn't, wasn't thinking about it. So um, getting through it, it was so surreal. Once I got out and back to the city, I knew that the department, you know, I put in a scar on the name. You know, um, it's, it's a disrespectful act to be a road cop like this. It is, uh, it's unworthy of, um, you know, the badge, of course. You know, I, I, uh, I, I signed an oath in the very beginning to um, serve and protect no matter what. And, and I broke it. And I broke it a long time ago. And, and, and I was good with it. I was good at accepting the fact that I'll never be a police officer again. Something that I love with all my heart uh, in the beginning, that passion, 
at the end it was dead. I couldn't remember what passion felt like anymore for my job. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't have it anymore. It wasn't even, you were just going through the motions to just try to maintain that. Yeah. Escape I was kind of day by day. I was in such a rut. I was doing, you know, when you're stealing from, from evidence and you're the only one that knows about it, yeah. what you're doing, it's, it's a horrible way to live. You know, it's a horrible way to live knowing that I'm an addict and I'm and actually thinking in my head at the time, like, Hmm, maybe I can carry this on the rest of my career and no one will know. That's insanity. Yeah. It's insanity. So you had, you're saying you, you had some seed of faith somewhere, right? That you're going to stay sober. And as long as you keep putting one foot in front of the other, you have a possibility of something coming out of all of this, right? Like yeah. that you, you used the word surrender earlier when you were in the room, you're talking and you just surrendered to everything and said, I have a problem. I need, but I met like that surrender translates over into all aspects, right? I'm surrendering up to just, I don't know what the future holds for me, but it has the potential and the opportunity to hold something for me. And so I'm going to keep going instead of what we see a lot, right? As people kind of take a few steps out into the unknown and it gets so uncomfortable and scary, they run back to what they know yeah. that escape. But you're like, you're a, another countless example of all these people that we know and that we see where if you just keep figuring out a way to keep moving forward, things evolve from it. Mm -hmm. And stuff that you probably couldn't have ever imagined would come out well, of I it. I did at the beginning. And you know what I really wanted at that time? I wanted someone with experience, someone that knew about law enforcement. I wanted to be able to go to someone to come and say, hey, Mike, we got you. This is the route you have to take. I understand you. I couldn't find any organizations out there that would be first responder related. I went up to Sonoma County and, and now I'm that person. I was going to say, you became what you needed. I did. And you know, eight years later, you know, the first year and a half, I, I couldn't find a job. I couldn't get a job at Walmart. I kept trying. I went into Walmart with my suit and tie. It was actually not even a, a basic Walmart. It was one of those uh, shipping Walmart stores. I, I, I went in, presented myself. They found out that I had a theft by that, by that time. So I, I got I, 47 felony counts that went back to the department. And they, the DA said, what do you want to do with uh, Mike? He's your guy. Charge him the way you want to charge him. They didn't, I don't think that the DA gave the department the option. Here's your case. Here's your guy. And they said one felony count of uh, theft. And I got it dropped down to uh, a misdemeanor eight months oh, wow. later. I'm extremely grateful for that. I'm 100% grateful. There were some angels watching out for me. I didn't have to go back and use or drink or go, you know, relapse. So, um, you know, moving forward, I finally got a job in a, in a detox, you know, stayed sober since then and started working in the field, went back to school, got a certificate for a drug and alcohol counseling. It took a couple of years, went back to school and I, st I started working um, as a drug and alcohol counselor and then specifically with first responders and then reaching out, starting my own podcast, uh, starting first responder uh, peer support meetings and, and reaching out and putting my name out there and getting back into the law enforcement community and the fire department community. And, and they know that they call me they're going to get directed to a proper safe place if they want or a well-vetted, trusted therapist or shrink, whatever you want to call them, right? right? <laughs> and, you know, if you take the sting out of it, I, shrink is sort of funny to me now. Before, it was sort of frightening. And, and I, they know if they call my, num my, my, my number, 
they're going to get directed in a positive place. Yeah. So that's why I started my podcast to right. connect those positive places that I can vet and and recommend to other people so they can connect together. So we don't have to like reinvent the wheel anymore. Just connecting a, a network of people that can be accessible to this community. That right. like it just sounds like you're just really trying to make yourself as accessible as possible to the people that might need you, the people that might not even know that they need you, but then right. they hear this and they're like, oh wow. Like I didn't know that I could reach out to this guy or to these people. Exactly. Or, yeah. Yeah. And just making that phone call is the hardest thing. Yeah. I've get family members sometimes. Oh, I, I need to get my son, son, son to, he's going he, he need to get him into therapy. I go, well, you know what? Give your son my number. When your son calls me, then I know that he took that first step. That's the hardest thing to do. They call it the thousand pound phone. Yeah. You know, you don't want to pick it up. It's like, oh, I can't dial those numbers, right? Or now we have iPhones. You don't have to do anything. You just have to, you know, push a couple buttons. Hit and send is so hard sometimes. Hit send, so. right? Yeah. Someone's going to answer. Oh, please answer machine. Please. Let me leave a message. And right. then they answer. What are you going to do? It's like, oh, shit. Yep. That's fearful, right? Yeah. yeah. And even to send a phone to someone you don't even know, calling a blocked number, I don't care. Disguise your voice. Right. Just say, tell me what's going on because I guarantee I understand. And so, and so what, all the stuff that you're doing now, you're, you have your podcast where you're trying to really reach a wide audience right? and it's specific. I mean, you're telling people stories, but it's specific for kind of first responders, right? Right. You travel, you give presentations. Sure. I don't want to, um, elaborate on all this for you, but yeah, well, I, I uh, actually work with uh, San Diego PD. I work with um, their peer support. I speak at the academies, the fire department also. And I also speak to the um, management uh, uh, training they have for newly lieutenants in San Diego. Uh, once a month, they have some training for them. So I'm on a panel there and speak to them. And I get asked uh, for the DA's office. The, the um, DA's office has uh, a special unit. And also they have the... Um, the DA's uh, supervisors, uh, I spoke at their meeting. And so DA investigators are uh, mostly retired police officers or police officers that transfer to the DA's office. And getting my story out, it might help one or two people. I get quite a few often people come to me and, and talk to me or I give them my number and they, they do call me and, and, and getting the word out. And I'm finding my story and a lot of other people. I'm finding my passion in a lot of other people. Uh, some of them never had a substance use disorder. Some of them suffer from PTSD or PTSI. Some of them are doing, going through other things. Some of them still have a job and they're actually changing it in their agency as we're speaking right now. And they haven't lost anything. They've taken care of their problem a couple right. years ago, but they're actually giving back now. And I love it. I love seeing that. Yeah. So, I mean, it just, I'm looking at you, you're smiling yeah. this whole time, the passion and all of that. It feels like your life is good now. You're really happy. You you have another thing that you're super passionate about. You're still connected to the police force and yes. first responders and all that. But like all of this from everything just crashing down to probably never picturing where you're at right now, but sitting here, I mean, I, I wouldn't doubt that you can 100% say you have a happy life. You like where you're at now. Exactly. Feel exactly. fulfilled. Yeah. I do. I really do. Yeah, I'm working with some great people. I currently work at uh, West Coast Recovery Center in Carlsbad, uh, the same city that I was a police officer at. Yeah, it's sort of full circle. And uh, you know, I I'm not back in with the department. You know, um, I think sometime I would love to um, help them out with their peer support. We I've talked to a few people there, and uh, I I think as time goes on, people understand that 
what happened with me has happened to a lot of people before. Yeah. And you can get through it no matter what. Right. And I wanted to be living proof that anybody can get through anything. When I first got sober, you know, straight out of uh, inpatient, I remember hearing a story of a L.A. cop who got busted and he was uh, with a prostitute. His shame, his guilt, his wife finding out, whatever his, what was going on in his life, he took his life. Oh, wow. He died by suicide. And I remember hearing that story and I was just fresh out of inpatient, moved back home with my mom. Uh, my wife filed divorce. I had all this stuff going on, bankruptcy, no money, an old car, no one calling me. I was just like so surreal. And I was thinking, he took his life negative. Something needs to be done. This is, and I said to myself, Mike, you're going to get through this. You got through it so far. And that was even, I wasn't even contemplating suicide at that point. I already got over that part. Right. But I, I was so like astonished. Like I could not believe it. It was horrific hearing that over the shame. Right. You think just I didn't shame. have That's any what shame? It, just the shame, right? I, I had can't a freaking, live with it. I had a backpack full of shame. Yeah. It was leaking out everywhere. I had to work on it. You know, it took me a while. I, I went to therapy. I went to intensive outpatient. I, uh, you know, I went to meetings. I got into a recovery program and I, I stayed sober and I had to work on myself and I got rid of all those demons I shoved down and all those secrets that I thought were so, you know, horrible and no one could understand me. I got them out. Yeah. I talked to another person about them and I worked on myself and I continue to do so to this point now we're talking. Yeah. And uh, and it's moving forward. And it's I still growing every day and all that. It's still growing. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. It's amazing. Well, Mike, this has been an uh, incredible story. I got chills like five different times talking nice. to you through this. It's just such a testament to there is no bottom low enough that people can't dig out of. You know what I mean? And that's like one of the huge things of why I wanted to start this so that people could see. Like right. you, Everybody can do this and make it out of whatever their circumstance. It doesn't have to just be substance use or whatever. Right. So yeah. I really appreciate you coming here. You got Thank it. Thank you so much. I want to tell you one thing too. When you just said that, remind me of this. The only hole that you can't dig yourself out of is your grave. Yeah. Don't let it get that far. Now for some final thoughts. Like I said at the beginning of this podcast, this is really a story about resiliency. It's not just a story about recovery. Mike found himself, like he said, in the bottom of the deepest, darkest hole and could not see an opening. But he had faith that if he just kept moving forward, if he just kept climbing, he could get out. And he ended up creating a life that he probably could have never imagined. I just really want to stress that this is possible for everybody. I've lived this in my own life. I've worked with countless clients and people that have done this in their own lives. It's, it's really one of the reasons why I started this whole podcast. So many people, when they get in a time of turmoil or they're facing adversity, it's really hard to project into the future and predict a life that could be better. But the only way that you are ever going to be able to see that better life is by moving forward into the unknown. Another thing that I want to focus on in this is judgment and shame. I, I'm wondering if people, when they were listening to this, felt some judgments towards Mike 
uh, towards his situation, towards the addiction, towards the theft, towards what he did. You know, we've all made mistakes. We've all been there. But some of this judgment is what Mike's talking about now, right? Why Mike's doing what he's doing for first responders, I believe, is because judgment's at the center of why they won't ask for help. Judgment and shame. People fear that they're going to be seen as liabilities, as weak. I mean, this is not just with first responders. This is with all of us. We hold ourselves back from getting the help that we need or moving forward in life pushing through fears because we're scared of being judged by others. And that creates a shame within us that makes us want to recede back into the shadows. Shame is mostly created by us. Other people have the ability to shame us, but we have all the ability in the world not to feel it, not to let it affect us. Like Mike said in the interview, if you know who you are in your heart, if you know where you're going and what you're doing, nobody else's opinion of you matters. And honestly, at the end of the day, those opinions are mostly being based out of that person or those people's own insecurities about themselves. All right, those are my final thoughts. Thanks for listening, everybody. 